Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, July 27th, 2012. Gotta admit, I'm excited about the Olympics. I, one of my favorite things. I just, what is it? What do they call somebody who loves the Olympic? An Olympic file? I, yeah, I don't know if there's an actual term. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. This is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is just a whole slew of really bad teaching out there. And listen, within within the Christian church, within Christianity, Christianity is not... A democracy. It is not a republic. Um, you don't get to vote on Christian doctrine. God has revealed what God has revealed, and Christ is king. So if your opinion difference differs than with what Scripture says, you are wrong. You are in error, and you need to repent. It's just that simple. And, you know, the reason why there's so many stories about, you know, what this teacher is saying or what that teacher is saying is because even the secular media is is noticing the fact that there's major Christian leaders who are deviating from what Scripture says. It's like, well, well that's interesting. Uh, this teacher over here who has this mega church in this old basketball arena, he doesn't agree anymore that this is that or the other thing. And, well, that's a problem. It's a big problem because the truth is true. Within Christianity, we're called to repent. In God's Word, it transforms and renews our minds, and we are to repent when we come across scriptures that disagree with what we believe. Unfortunately, that's not what's happening. In fact, it, for lack of a better way of putting it, the more somebody deviates from the biblical text and what God has revealed, it seems like the more they're being rewarded with power, influence, money, big churches, and book deals and things like that. In fact, the more somebody sticks to what the Scripture says, that's almost a sure and certain formula within the American context to guarantee that you remain in obscurity and are maligned and impugned. It's just one of those things. By the way, if you hear the... Uh, thunderstorm behind me i understand that i'm broadcasting during a thunderstorm today uh no choice you know we're in a, under a severe thunderstorm watch here in central indiana until 
uh, like 11 o'clock tonight. So I, hopefully it won't cause the power to go out while I'm watching the uh, the Olympics. That's all I'm saying. So. <laughs> Yeah, because I was, you know, I was thinking, okay, as soon as we're done here at Fighting for the Faith, you know, I gotta, you know, I, I don't have a television, but I do have a projector. So we were thinking about hooking the projector up to our, our old cable box. Uh, it, <laughs> it, we we've come up with an elaborate system here, and I do have the TiVo, you know, so uh, you know, I still have our old TiVo. So we're 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 working out some kind of an elaborate duct tape patchwork solution. That will somehow, uh, you know, get us to make it so that we can watch the opening ceremonies tonight. That, that's okay. Keep in mind, I'm a nerd, and so we're, you know, if you have a nerd, technology is my slave, and I will make it work. That's all I'm saying. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Bizarre, bizarre uh, video clip. From Aaron Benziger's uh, blog, uh, you know, apparently Benny Hinn has predicted that he's got a prophecy that there, a revival is about ready to break loose in the United States. And uh, there's going to be something that's going to kick that off. We'll play that here in a minute. I'm not going to tell you what the supposed event that's coming up that's going to be the key to unlocking revival in the United States. Uh, so we got a prophecy from Benny Hinn. Um, and then, uh, now listen, yesterday... Um, Yesterday, I played sporadic, kind of random portions of Rob Bell's ramblings at the uh, at the Viper Room and there in uh, in Hollywood. Well, just so you know, the 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 other shoe that's going to drop, aside from the fact that he rambled on and talked about himself for a good uh, hour and thirty minutes, he there was a time when he was you know they he kicked open the door and allowed people to ask questions. Of Rob Bell, kind of a rare occurrence, by the way. It's very rare that uh, they, you know, that Rob Bell fields questions directly from the audience, unfiltered. I mean, it was such a you know small group anyway. Well, um, it turns out that uh, during the Q and A, Rob Bell was asked a question from a gay man in Hollywood, and it turns out, no surprise, that Rob Bell has officially come out as being gay affirming. No, no doubt about it. We'll play the audio for you, for you to listen to. And uh, and then what I'm going to be doing is uh, I'm going to be reading to you a piece from Vadi Bakum, um, and um, he's got a fantastic piece at the Gospel Coalition website called Gay is Not the New Black. Gay is Not the New Black. And and I might even stick in a a, a red-letter Christian piece, uh, which is a, a perfect example of what we call, de, uh, you know, de- language deconstructionism. And the name of the article is, I'm a heterosexual and that's not okay. So, um, yeah, and then, oh man, hour number two. Gotta warn you here. Um, we're going to be going back down to Potential Church. It's, 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 again, I'm really discouraged with the folks down at Potential Church because they're, they they went from actually being a church to now being a church in Potentia. And I keep hoping that they're going to do something to to dig themselves out of the hole that they've got themselves into. I mean, Troy Gramling is probably one of the most miserable, inept handlers of God's word that I've ever heard. Well, <laughs> and then you know he started this throwback series that they're currently in. You know, a so-called series themed on, you know, a throwback to the 80s. And no joke, um, the sermon we're going to be reviewing supposedly has something to do with Raiders of the Lost Ark. But after listening to the sermon, I thought, what on earth does this have to do with Raiders of the Lost Ark? And it's not even Troy Gramling preaching. It's 
Pastor Holly Brown, female, and uh, oh, wow. Um, let me say this, is that she tells a heart-wrenching story about the, the trauma and the suffering that she's experienced in her life uh, pertaining to a uh, a, a brain tumor, uh, you know, an inoperable brain tumor that her father was diagnosed with, and he lingered for a long time. Terrible, horrible story. That being said, I mean, what's interesting about her uh, sermon is that, um, boy, it really clearly reveals the complete narcissistic non-gospel that's being pawned off as the gospel um, in these seeker-driven churches. And so, I mean, I, I consider her to be a victim of bad preaching and that she would get up and preach. Number one, she's not a pastor. The Bible doesn't allow for that. Um, number two, um, she shouldn't have been teaching. But number three, she did teach and went what she taught Again, clearly outlines, you, you can see the basic skeletal structure of the belief system of the false gospel that's being preached in these churches. And so that's what we're going to do in hour number two. I would just say, make yourself comfortable. It's going to be an interesting edition of Fighting for the Faith. A lot of editions of Fighting for the Faith are interesting. I, you know, I've long ago, it takes a lot to surprise me. Let's just put it that way. Long ago, I, I stopped being surprised by just the, the you know, talk about the slippery slope that you're on. Uh, just when you think it can't get any lower, it gets lower. It continues to get lower. And it, you know, if, you know, anyway, you get what I'm saying. So uh, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And uh, normally I save this for the Patricia King gang, but uh, Benny Hinn fits the bill. Here we go. Are you waiting for revival to break out in the United States? Well, there's a lot of people that are hoping that revival will break out, but are you aware of what signs to look for? Well, Aaron Benziger from the DoNotBeSurprised.com website has dug up a prophecy from Benny Hinn where he has given us the prophetic keys to unlocking and, un and knowing when... Um, um, revival is going to break out in the United States. Um, yeah, here's the audio is not that good, but you'll get the gist of it. Here's Benny Hinn. Into a manifestation of power where there won't just be power on one or two. No, that's somebody talking to Benny Hinn. Hang on. It's going to be power on multiplied thousands and, and thousands. And may I, may I add, the sign will be Billy Graham's death. Wow. Okay. Oh, no. Oh man, it just the... so I mean, apparently this power and revival is going to break out in the United States as soon as Billy Graham dies. It, it makes you wonder if Benny Hinn is now some kind of like you know prophetic ambulance chaser. But let's listen a little bit more. No, no, I'm being raw here. Wow. You are talking about a people in hiding, just like Elijah was in hiding in Jericho. Right. right. So we got a we got the remnant in hiding, just waiting for the death of Billy Graham. Oh. But when he came out, he challenged the prophet. Exactly. Yeah. Went right into the courts. Right there. And the Lord's the same spirits. Oh, exactly. Those are the same principalities. And the Lord said to me in '89. Sorry. Yeah, '89. He said, "When Oral Roberts and Billy Graham go home, will be the key. Wow. It'll be the sign." Of the beginning of the greatest revival on earth. Wow. Oral is home. Right. Yeah. Billy is about to go home. Yeah. And when he does, I'm telling the whole church, get ready. 
Paul, can we go there? Yes, we can go. We are going to, because we, we, we've got to go. The last... All right, so get ready for revival. You know, when you wake up one morning and see the news, and the headline reads that uh, Billy Graham has died, uh, apparently that's going to be the sign that revival is about to break loose. Good night. I mean, what does that make him, like a prophetic vulture? I mean, what is, yeah, I, I'm not even sure if I have the words for that. But, oh, man. I'm, ugh. you know, I don't, I don't understand what it is with American evangelicalism's obsession with trying to figure out how to cause or, you know, figure out when the next big revival is going to break out. You know, it's, it's like we have any control over such things anyway. And like Benny Hinn is really a prophet of God. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, you know, we're called to preach the word in season and out of season. Get to it and stop obsessing and, and you know, and you know, for this idea that somehow there's going to be this great revival. There may be, but if there is a big revival, it's going to come through preachers who are boldly proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and they're teaching sound doctrine, which which accords with what Scripture really says. And they're not engaging in monkey business like Benny Hinn, uh, Rod Parsley, um, or any of these other jokers. You, you get what I'm saying here? It, the job of the pastor is to preach the word. So if there's ever going to be a revival, it's not going to happen at the hands of, of those yahoos on TVN. Yeah, that if there if though if a revival breaks out with those guys at the helm, that ain't a revival. That's going to be a full blown wave, like tidal wave, a tsunami of heresy. You know, if if it's got Stephen Furtick or Perry Noble or Craig Rochelle surfing that wave, oh, run for the hills. That maybe, you know. You break out your Y2K, uh, you know, food that you bought, you know, for the, you know, the big cataclysmic destruction that was supposed to happen on, you know, at, you know, at midnight at Y2K. You, you might need it then. Good night. Okay. It's the kind of stuff that just drives me crazy. Moving along. Bell update. Done far too many of these lately. Hopefully, be the last one for a while. How many special people change? How many lives are living strange? Where were you while we were getting high? Slowly walking down. Faster than a cannonball Where were you while we were getting high? Someday you will find me Caught beneath the landslide In a champagne supernova in the sky Champagne supernova in the sky. Uh, yeah, 
All right, so that's uh, Oasis uh, from their What's the Story Morning Glory album, the name of the song Champagne Supernova. I think that's the 90s version of uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. But anyway, let me, you know, before I get to the Rob Bell piece, I got an email shortly before I went on the air today. Hey, let's see if I can find this. I am so behind on my emails. It's not even funny. All right, so uh, yeah, I did get it. I got an email from uh, Dave and uh, from Des Moines, Iowa. Dave writes, he says, I'm listening to your podcast from July 26th about Rob Bell's paint drying thing. Yeah, that's what I named the segment, you know. <laughs> it's like listening to the paint dry. Anyway, he says, I loved it when you transitioned between Rob Bell and Patricia King. That was great to illustrate what each of them are preaching on. The transition showed beautifully that they're not talking about Jesus or the Bible. But they're talking about themselves. They think themselves so interesting that people will sit and listen to them tell stories about themselves. As if comparing ourselves to ourselves, we will find God. What a vapid, empty mode of thinking. How sad that so many of us would rather listen to ourselves than listen to the gospel. How true the Bible is when it says that no one seeks God no, not one. David, that, great points. Great email, by the way. But uh, so, just so you know that uh, after Rob Bell was done talking about himself, uh, they kicked open the uh, the door to allow people to ask questions. And um, there was somebody who was uh, homosexual in the audience, and he decided to uh, ask Rob Bell straight up regarding the gay issue. And what's not surprising, listen, this is the guy who wrote Love Wins, which basically is a postmodern deconstruction of the doctrine of hell, which is taught clearly by Jesus and is a clear biblical doctrine that has been taught from the beginning of the church. Uh, Rob Bell took it upon himself to go ahead and attack that just viciously and insert his own eschatology, basically claiming Oh, love wins, and you know I believe in hell. I just don't believe that there's gonna ever that no one that eventually no one's gonna be there. You know, <laughs> what's the whole point of Christ talking about eternal judgment, eternal damnation, um, as opposed to eternal life? You, you, you get what I'm saying, anyway. So, so where do you think Rob Bell would come down on the uh, issue regarding homosexuality? Do you think that Rob Bell would? Say, listen, the Bible clearly teaches, okay, that uh, homosexual behavior, um, homosexual intercourse um, of all stripes, you know, even the attraction itself, that's all sin, okay? It's a sin. And the good news is that Christ loves sinners so much that he bled and died for the sins of the world. And so, homosexuals, you know, Christ loves them so much that he died for those sins. You think that's what Rob Bell would say? Yeah, not on your life, okay? So, but the, here's the thing. The thing that's monumental about this, and I'm surprised other news outlets like the Christian Post haven't covered this, is that Rob Bell clearly, basically, is affirming homosexuality. L let's listen, and you can hear the uh, question and Rob Bell's answer. Here we go. Yeah. On a more serious note, uh, you're here in West Hollywood. And yes. It's kind of epicenter of the gay community in yes. Southern California. Yeah. Um, a lot of the words that Christians have for us have been very negative. Yeah. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah. By the way, I got to stop right there. The words that Christians should have for people who are who have, who are currently committing or practicing the sin of homosexuality. Um, 
is should be the same as the same message that we have for those who are practicing uh, idolatry, uh, dishonoring their parents, uh, lying, stealing, committing adultery, coveting, you know, murder, things like that. It should be the same word. Repent and be forgiven. That's the word that Christians should have for everybody. You know, but I want to point something out here. I'm going to pause for a second. I want you to think about something. Okay. And that's this that homosexuals within the visible church are demanding they're actually demanding a special status. And here's what I mean by that is that they want to have a status within the church that basically says, listen, I understand you heterosexuals out there, you need to repent and be forgiven of your sins, but we don't. So what we're demanding is that you recognize that we have a right to remain unrepentant and unforgiven regarding this sin. And um, and and so you, we want a special status within the church, and that's unrepentant, unforgiven Christian. Here's the problem. There's no such thing. There's no such status. Okay? Everybody who's truly a part of the church. I'm not talking about visible visible now. I'm talking part of the the real uh, uh, body of Christ. Are those only those who are sinners who've been brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? That you you are not a Christian if you have not if you are not a penitent forgiven sinner. They want to be impenitent unforgiven Christians. There's no such thing. And not only that, no human being on the planet has the right to grant such a status. No human being does. Okay? These are decisions that are out of the hands of humans. That you, you want to be a, you want to you, you you want to be an impenitent, unforgiven Christian? You want that status to be established within the Christ's church? You're going to have to take that up with Christ himself. Cuz he's the head of the church. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and it's His Word, the Bible, the the Word of God, where He's revealed that this is just not going to happen. Okay, there's no such thing as a impenitent, unforgiven Christian. There's just no such thing. But let's see what Rob Bell does with this. So he's got the question now. Thank you for asking that. We're here in West Hollywood, epicenter of a lot of uh, gay culture, and you're asking. Um, some people are gay. And you're our brothers, and you're our sisters, and we love you. Okay, um, my brother-in-law is gay. Is that what you mean? You're our brothers and our sisters, and we love you? Yeah, I mean, my brother-in-law is gay, and I love him. And But that doesn't mean I recognize him as a Christian brother. Define the word brother in that sentence, Rob. We love you. Uh, and it's really, really, really important that we're clear. I had a good friend when I was in my teens who was gay and hadn't told anybody, and I was the first person he told. And um, probably the most loving, generous, uh, holy, one of the most, um, he was extraordinary, is extraordinary. But at an early age, I was like, some people are gay, and God loves them just like God loves me, and they're passionate disciples of Jesus just like I'm trying to be. 
So let's all get together and try to do something about the truly big problems in our world that I believe Jesus would have us band together and tackle together. Uh, so there you go. Does Rob Bell sound like he's going to call him to repentance for the sin of homosexual intercourse or anything like that? Nope. Some people are gay. God loves them. Let's band together. And, you know, there's gay people who are, are passionate disciples of Jesus. Let's band together and solve the real problems of the world. And this is not an issue that we need to address. In other words, Rob Bell, at the Viper Room the other night, clearly came out as gay-affirming. Do you think for a second that Rob Bell's going to be eating uh, chicken sandwiches at Chick-fil-A? Not on your life. He will not be eating Chick-fil-A. Um, in fact, it's pretty clear that he's cast his vote with those who are up in arms about Chick-fil-A. So, something to consider. I consider that to be a big story. But you've just heard it for yourself. Rob Bell clearly now has come out as gay affirming. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Thank you for downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. 
preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room, or sit in silence for several minutes, or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair, and... Oh, no. What I say? You out there! How am I supposed to experience the presence of God if you're using a jackhammer? Shut up! Definitely sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time! I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something! If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way! Just open the Bible and read it! Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Have you purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. USA. And 
Those Christian pastors who refuse to call sin, sin, leave their listeners in their sins, unrepentant and unforgiven, and still on their way to hell. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you'd like to specify the amount, you do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank all of you who support us. We cannot do what we do without your help. And uh, if you haven't already picked up your T-shirt for the bake sale, you can still do so at piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale. Moving along. These are the sounds of the... Postmodern Philharmonic Emergent Orchestra, Doug Paget presiding, and their rendition of Strauss's Also Sprock Zarathustra. Having been set free from those pesky limiting definitions of notes created by the moderns, they now just let spirit guide them as they just let it flow through them. Postmodern music just so much better than that other kind. <clears throat> anyway, uh, talk about postmodernism. Um, Mal Green from the uh, RedLetterChristians.org website has a uh, post that went up ye- yesterday entitled "I'm a heterosexual and that's not okay." Now, the reason I bring this to your attention, Red Letter Christians, this would be a blog by Tony Campolo and friends. Friends would include Jim Wallace, Brian McLaren. And others who are clearly postmodern in their worldview. Okay, if you don't know what that is, uh, one of the things I recommend doing: go back to the May 11th episode of Fighting for the Faith, entitled "Resistance is Futile." You will be assimilated into the community. I give a just a quick overview, uh, you know, between the epistemology of postmodernism versus uh, modernism. You you need to get these categories firm to understand what's going on. But here's the idea that's going on in postmodernism. Okay, truth is not transcendent. Nope. Truth is that some somebody would experience truth while they are in conversation within a community. 
Okay, And so the idea is this, is that you can't say to one group of people – notice I'm saying group, not person. You can't say to one group of people, murder is murder is murder, and it's wrong, 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 always, always, always. If you murder, you're sinning. Okay, It may be possible in the postmodern way of thinking that murder is okay for one group of people but not okay for another. Okay, it depends on the community and the needs of the community. The community is the is the thing that is of note. Okay, so individuals experience truth while they are in conversation within a community. Notice I said experience it. Okay, so the idea is is that if you were to really take it to its logical conclusion, two plus two equals four may be true in some community settings, but that may not be true in other community settings, Okay, which is one of the reasons why major postmodern leaders uh, within the Christian church are noted for their love of what is called new math, Okay, because they're being consistent with their worldview, and that is that there's no such thing as something that, tr you know, a transcendent truth that binds us all, that they do believe in truth, but truth is experienced, not known, truth is experienced in conversation within a community. Okay, other thing you need to know is that classic postmodern philosophers like Foucault, Derrida, uh, Rorty, and others, okay, they, they engage in what's called language deconstruction, and they considered the idea that language, you know, ultimately the gr it's a group of people determines what language means, and they use language as a means of suppressing, oppressing, and and controlling imperialistically uh, other people or and other groups okay and so what they what the, the postmoderns do is they they are they will come to the aid of those who are being oppressed by imperialistic tendencies and and aggressive groups and and come to their aid and one of the things they do is they engage in what's called language deconstruction deconstruct the language and you take away the club that's being used to oppress other groups Okay, that's the that's the thinking. Okay, you need to know all that because Mal Green here at the Red Letter Christians site, what you what we have here in this piece, I'm a heterosexual and that's not okay. This is classic postmodernism. By the way, postmodernism is an epistemology that absolutely doesn't work because here's the idea: postmoderns will deconstruct the language of everybody else, but not themselves. It doesn't apply to them. It only applies to their target, okay? Their words are to be taken literally, and then they deconstruct other people's words. But let me read Mal Green's piece, or at least a part of it here, and then I'll switch over to Vadi Bakum. But uh, the title for this piece came to me after a focus group meeting on sexuality with which some incendo missionaries. That is not a research-based paper, but it's not a report on the statistics about sexual relation, relational atrocities. It is not an attempt to compare heterosexual behavior with the behavior of any other expression of sexuality. It is simply an expression of a realization that because of the behavior of heterosexual males historically and currently, notice the heterosexual males are the people who are in power and they're repressing and suppressing and oppressing um, you know, people who are not heterosexuals. Um, yeah, being heterosexuals does not give me superiority over people who identify with an alternate expression of sexuality. The debate on sexuality for much of modern history, particularly in the Abrahamic monotheistic faith, seems to have been framed largely in a dichotomous and polarizing discourse that says, I'm heterosexual and that's okay. The converse implied or blatantly stated is, you're homosexual or lesbian or gay or bisexual, transgender, intersex, 
LGBTI, and that's not okay. This means that the whole debate starts off with one group assuming a dominant position. This is classic postmodern argumentation. Classic postmodern argumentation. So this is all about group power and oppression, which I would basically say hog wash. I don't grant the premise. This has to do with whether or not transcendent truth applies to all human beings. Listen, if for somebody to sit there and go, well, I'm a heterosexual, I'm okay, and you're a homosexual and you're not okay, that's not even framing it properly. The question is, where do we get the idea of right and wrong from? That's the question that needs to be answered. Do we get this? Do we decide as a group, whatever 51% or 50.1% of us vote on and agree to is going to be our morals, that's going to be our morals? Okay. Well, if that's the case, what happens when our group decides that we're going to, you know, 50.1% of us say cannibalism is okay? Now, I'm using an absurd argument here, but you get what I'm saying here. You know, okay, no, this is this is just a formula for complete you know, moral breakdown, you know, anarchy, if you would. No, the, here's the idea. None of us, not one of us, either individuals or communities, has the ability or right to determine what is right and what is wrong. That is a standard that is objective and it's outside of us and it's revealed to us from God within the Abrahamic monotheistic faiths, which is a miserable way of talking about Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. I'll speak to, you know, regarding Christianity. Within Christianity, it's real clear. God has said, thou shalt not. And that's the end of the story. And that is applicable to all of us, period. Thou shalt not lie with a man as with a woman. That is an abomination God has revealed. And who was speaking there, by the way? Well, that's Jesus. This argument that's put out there, well, when Jesus was on earth, he never said anything about homosexuality. Um, yeah, that's the selective cherry picking of the evidence here. Who was speaking when uh, to Moses when this was revealed in Leviticus? Answer, Jesus. Jesus is God. Okay. He had already laid it out, okay? So this idea that somehow Jesus has never said anything regarding homosexuality <laughs> overlooks the fact that he's God in human flesh, and he has clearly spoken, and God the Holy Spirit inspired all Scripture to be written, and we know that in other clear passages, this is clearly a sin, okay? So the issue is not heterosexuals oppressing and taking a dominant position and suppressing uh, homosexuals. That's not it at all. This is a matter of revealed moral truth and that transcends all cultures, all communities, all individuals that we are all accountable to, plain and simple. Now, watch this. Okay. Mal Green then quotes <clears throat> here's this is the next paragraph. Uh, Foucault has written extensively about how language gives the group that says, I'm okay, the position of power in an argument because if I'm okay, I must be superior to those who are not okay. Michel Foucault. Really? You're going to quote Foucault. Foucault, the postmodern. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, this is Foucault, the guy who basically lived out postmodernism to the point where he became 
you know, basically a complete, he, there was no restraint on his sinful nature at all. He completely went homosexual and died of AIDS. You're going to quote Foucault here. The, you know, basically the hedonistic postmodern deconstructionist who ended up dying as a result of the consequences of his own worldview, right? Foucault has nothing to offer the church, nothing. If, we, if, if the church is going to study Foucault, it needs to study it as in defense of the dark arts. That's the category. But, you know, here we got Mal Green, you know, basically saying Foucault's right here that, you know, that, uh, you know, language gives one group that says I'm okay the position of power in an argument because if I'm okay, they must be superior to those who are not okay. And so if you're feeling that you're not okay, as many LGBTI people do, especially in Christianity, then you feel disempowered. Folks, this wasn't written five years ago or six years ago or ten years ago by Tony Jones, Doug Paget, or, or Brian McLaren. This was published yesterday at Red Letter Christians. This is a straight up, flat out, completely, you know, this is a, a this is a prime example of postmodernism. Those who would argue that, oh yeah, that whole postmodern thing, it's you know gone and past, you know we're well past it. Here's the thing that's changed, okay? The guys who are the champions of postmodernism, they just stopped saying the word postmodernity. They stopped talking about the subject itself, but continued using the same arguments. This is a post, clearly, unequivocally, a postmodern argument that's showing up at a so called Christian website, Christian blog, by Tony Campolo. By the way, in my lecture, Resistance is Feudal, You'll Be Assimilated by the Community, I draw the clear connections that connect the dots from Derrida, Foucault, all the way straight back to Heidegger, Paul de Mon, and the Nazis. Okay? I'm, and I know this is going to sound strange to some of you, but again, listen to my lecture. You'll begin to see how this works. Okay? This is exactly the exact same worldview that the fascists held both in Italy and in Germany, and the result was the Holocaust. Okay, This postmodern worldview is one of the most dangerous things ever to emerge in human history, and when it breaks out, it causes literally the deaths of millions. Okay, So you, you deny the existence of transcendent moral truths that bind us all. You unleash man's latent... Uh, you, it, it, it's sinful nature. You unleash man's sinful nature because the thing that's holding it back are all of these institutional rules and regulations and laws and governing morals. You get rid of all of that. You say that there's no such thing as truth. You are one step closer to the next Holocaust. And I'm not joking. That's literally the case. Now, moving along, I'm not going to play any music for this because I'm going to watch my time. Vadi Bakum has written a fantastic fantastic article over at the Gospel Coalition website, and the name of it is Gay is Not the New Black. And this is an argument using, for the most part, um, a, a natural law. It's not exactly a, a an argument using um, a, the scripture. Okay, but natural natural law comes into play here. This would be, you know, kind of the book of nature, if you would. So this is an argument, yeah, but there's these some fantastic arguments going against a lot of the crazy stuff that's being said in the media about how gay is now the new black, making this into a civil rights issue. Vadi Bakum does a fantastic job in this article of shooting that down. Let me read. 
Vadi Bakum writes, it's, it's hard to deny that homosexual marriage appears to be a foregone conclusion in America. This is a frightening prospect, not only for those of us who understand marriage to be a testimony of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, but also for all who value the family and its contribution to the well-being of society and human thriving. And while it's difficult to watch a coordinated, well-funded, well-connected propaganda strategy uh, undermine thousands of years of human history. It is especially disconcerting to witness the use of the civil rights struggle as the vehicle for the strategy. The idea that same-sex marriage, in quotes, is the next leg in the civil rights race is ubiquitous. One of the clearest examples of the, conf- of the conflation of homosexual marriage and civil rights is Michael Gross's article in The Advocate in which he coins the now popular phrase, gay is the new black. Gross is not alone in his conflation of the two issues. However, at at a 2005 banquet, Julian Bond, former head of the NAACP, sexual disposition parallels race. I was born this way. I have no choice. I wouldn't change it if I could. Sexuality is unchangeable. Nor is this kind of thinking exclusive to the political left. When asked by GQ magazine if he thought homosexuality was a choice, Michael Steele, former uh, chairman for the Republican National Committee, replied, quote, Oh, no, I don't think I've ever really subscribed to that view. You can turn it on and off like a water tap. Um, You know, I think that there's a a whole lot that goes into the makeup of an individual that uh, you just can't simply say, oh, like, tomorrow morning I'm going to stop being gay. It's like saying, tomorrow morning I'm going to stop being black. Even the California Supreme Court bought into this line of reasoning in a February 2008 decision. They reasoned, furthermore, in contrast to earlier times, our state now recognizes that an individual's capacity to establish a loving and long-term committed relationship with another person and, and responsibly to care for and raise children does not depend upon the individual's sexual orientation, or more generally, that an individual's sexual orientation, like a person's race or gender, does not constitute a legitimate basis upon which to deny or withhold legal rights. The California Supreme Court, like Gross, would have us believe that the homosexual struggle for a redefinition of marriage puts them in the same category as my ancestors, Vadi Bakum being an African-American. However, they would rather you not take a closer look lest you see how flimsy the comparison turns out to be. The first problem with the idea of conflating sexual orientation and race is the fact that homosexuality is undetectable apart from self-identification. Determining whether or not a person is black, Native American, or female usually involves no more than visual verification. However, should doubt remain, blood test genetics or a quick trip to the family tree would suffice. Not so with homosexuality. There is no evidence that can confirm or deny a person's claims regarding sexual orientation. Moreover, the homosexual community itself has made this identification even more complicated in an effort to distance itself from those whose same-sex behavior they find undesirable. The Jerry Sandusky case is a prime example. Sandusky is accused of molesting numerous young boys during during and after his tenure at Penn State. However, try placing the label homosexual on his activities and the backlash will be swift and unequivocal. Quote, pedophiles are not homosexuals is the consistent refrain coming from the homosexual community, media, academia, and the psychological medical establishment. Hence, it seems same-sex attraction 
alone isn't enough to identify a person as homosexual as a homosexual. And what about those women in college who say they're lesbian until graduation or same-sex relationships in prison? Are these people homosexual? How about men who are extremely effeminate but prefer women or those who are once practicing homosexuals but who have since come out of the out of the lifestyle? In short, it's impossible to identify who is or is not a homosexual. As a result, how do we know whom the civil rights in questions should be attributed? Should a man who isn't a homosexual, assuming we could determine such a thing, but tries to enter a same-sex union be treated the same as women who isn't Native American but tries to claim it to win sympathy or casino rights or votes? But this isn't the only problem with the civil rights angle. An additional problem with the gay is the new black argument is the complete disconnect between same-sex marriage and anti-miscegenation uh, laws. First, there is a categorical disconnect. Miscegenation laws literally means the interbreeding of people considered to be of different racial types. Ironically, the fact that homosexuals cannot interbreed shines a spotlight on the problem inherent in their logic. How can forbidding people who are actually... who actually have the ability to interbreed be the same thing as acknowledging the fact that two people categorically lack that ability. Second, there is a definitional disconnect. The very definition of marriage eliminates the possibility of including same-sex couples. The word marriage has a long and well-recorded history. It means the union of a man and a woman. Even in cultures that practice polygamy, the definition involves a man and several women. Therefore, while anti-miscegenation laws denied people a legitimate right, the same cannot be said concerning the denial of marriage to same-sex couples. One cannot be denied a right or to something that doesn't exist. It should be noted that the right to marry is one of the most frequently denied rights we have. People who are already married are denied that. Twelve-year-olds are denied the right to marry. People who are too closely related are just a few categories of people routinely and or categorically denied the right to marry. Hence, the charge that it is wrong to deny any person a fundamental right rings hollow. There has always been, there has always been, and net by necessity will always be, discrimination in marriage laws. Third, there is a historical disconnect. As early as the times of Moses, recorded history is replete with interracial marriages. In our own history, the marriage of John Rolfe and Pocahontas in the 17th century, along with the fact that anti-miscegenation laws were usually limited only to the intermarrying of certain races of people, i.e. black and white, stands as historical evidence of the legal and logical inconsistency of such laws. Thus, unlike same-sex marriage advocates, those fighting for the right to intermarry in the civil rights era had history on their side. Fourth, there is a legal disconnect. One thing that seems to escape most people in this debate is the fact that homosexuals have never been denied the right to marry. They simply haven't been had the right to redefine marriage. But don't take my word for it. Listen to the Iowa Supreme Court in their decision in favor of same-sex marriage. Quote, It is true that the marriage statutes does not expressly prohibit gay and lesbian persons from marrying, it does, however, require that if they marry, it must be to someone of the opposite sex. There is not only a black and white, but also a legal decision. Homosexuals haven't been deprived of any right. How then do they, on the side of same-sex marriage, continue to make the claim that this is a civil rights issue? The key in the, is in the next paragraph. The right of a gay or lesbian person under the marriage statute to enter into a civil marriage 
only with a person of the opposite sex is no right at all. Under such a law, gay or lesbian individuals cannot simultaneously fulfill their deeply felt need for a committed personal relationship as influenced by their sexual orientation and gain the civil status and attendant benefits granted by the statute. I feel the need to remind the reader that this is a legal decision since phrases like gay or lesbian individuals cannot simultaneously fulfill their deep felt need for a committed personal relationship tend to sound out of place in such a document. Further, this is uh, asinine logic. For example, following this line of reasoning, one could argue, I have the right to join the military, but I'm a pacifist. Therefore, I don't really have the right since it would be repulsive to me. Therefore, we need to establish a pacifist branch of the military so that I can fulfill both my desire to join the military and my desire to not fight. However, this reason is critically important in order to make the next leap in logic. Um, a. Gay or lesbian person can only gain the same rights under the statute as a heterosexual person by negating the very trait that defines gay and lesbian people as a class, their sexual orientation. Perhaps the most damning aspect of the civil rights argument is logical insustainability. If sexual orientation slash identity is the basis for, one, classification as a minority group, two, legal grounds for the redefinition of marriage, then what's to stop the bisexual from fighting for the ability to marry a man and a woman simultaneously since his orientation is by definition directed towards both sexes? What about the member of the NAMBLA? Those orient uh, That would be the man-boy-love people, those whose orientation is toward young boys. Where do we stop and on what basis? Homosexual advocates are loath to answer this question. In fact, they are adept in avoiding it and are rarely pressed on the point. However, the further legal implications of court decisions about same-sex marriage are inevitable. Nowhere is this clearer than in Lawrence versus Texas, a decision that struck down anti-sodomy laws. In the majority decision, Justice Kennedy cited his 1992 opinion in Planned Parenthood's uh, versus is Casey, quote, these matters involving this, the most intimate and personal choices a person make, uh, may make in a lifetime, choices central to a personal dignity and autonomy are central to the liberty protected by the Fourth Amendment. At the heart of the liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under the compulsion of the state. I have no legal training, uh, this is Vadi saying, and I recognize the limits of my ability to fully evaluate the implications of such a decision. However, I do take notice when Justice Scalia responds to this assertion by stating, quote, I've never heard of a law that attempted to restrict one's right to define certain concepts, and if the passage calls into question the government's power to regulate actions based on one's self-defined concept of existence, it is, a passage, uh, it is the passage that ate the rule of the law. It is very important for those of us who oppose the idea of same-sex marriage to do so, not because we wish to preserve our version of the American dream, but because we believe marriage is a living, breathing picture of the relationship between Christ and his church, and because we know that God has designed the family in a particular way. While the design of the family promotes human thriving, the testimony points people to their own hope in this life and the next. As a result, silence on this issue is not an option. Unfortunately, and quite ironically, many Christians have been bullied into silence by me the mere threat of censure from the homosexual lobby. Oppose us, and you're no better than Governor Wallace, Hitler, and the homophobes who killed Matthew Shepard, is their not-so-subtle refrain. Consequently, we spend so much time trying to prove that we're 
We're not hate-filled murderers that we fail to recognize that the emperor has no clothes. There is no legal, logical, or moral, biblical, or historical reason to support same-sex marriage. In fact, there are myriads of reasons not to support it, and I've only provided a few. Great article by Vadi Bakum, and if you have, if, you know, you find this at the Gospel Coalition, one worth you know making a copy of and keeping on your hard drive or sending to people, uh, you know, in your email lists. I, people seem to include me in those, but you don't need to send it to me back to me. I just read it to you. All right. So uh, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sermon review. You don't want to miss it. Catch you on the other side of the break. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lax comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <coughs> You'll laugh. <laughs> You'll scream. <coughs> And you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm up to buy it right now. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater, The Budget Cuts, Part 2. Disapproved of by heretics everywhere. Get it before they do. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Going back down to Florida to Potential Church. As the church that lost their church status, they're now just a church in Potentia. important to note that Dan Sutherland was the guy who transitioned them from a real church into a seeker-driven church, and then they brought in Troy Gramling. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's um, sermon comes to us via Potential Church, Cooper City, Florida. 
Pastrix, Holly Brown presiding. The name of the sermon is Throwback, and supposedly it's got some kind of a tie-in to the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because throwback, they're going, they're throwing back to the 80s. That's what's supposedly going on there. But so Troy Gramling will introduce Pastrix Holly Brown, and then we're going to get into it. The reason I chose this, folks, if you do not understand law and gospel, if then you do not know how to understand the scriptures. Period. The Bible is a closed book, and this is an example of somebody who obviously has had a steady diet of seeker-driven sermons and literally has no clue what to do with the biblical text. We're going to hear a lot about her story, and it's a sad one, and I won't critique that, but we're going to take a look at, listen carefully for what she's doing with the biblical text that she does, how she can't even begin to see what it's really about, and how the gospel she preaches is... Not only is it deficient, it's just a flat-out false gospel. It's And it's so narcissistic, it's unbelievable. So without... Let me kill the music. Without any further ado, here's Troy Grambling to introduce Holly Brown. And they're going to play some Indiana Jones music. Because apparently this has some kind of a theme regarding Indiana Jones. I mean, you could have fooled me there. But anyway, here we go. Starting off a little Van Halen jump because it's a hey guys, throwback. Welcome to Potential Church. It is great to see you today. Hope you're having a great, great summer. Now, we're going to continue in our series, kind of throwing it back to the 1980s. Do you know the number one movie in 1981 was Raiders of the Lost Ark? Just a few moments, Pastor Holly's going to come out. She's going to share her story, but she's also going to talk a little... Yes, she is. That's exa- She's going to share her story, which, by the way, is not what you're supposed to do when you're preaching. A little bit about how we often look in our lives for that, that one thing that was lost. Maybe that one thing that we didn't experience as a child, or that one thing that we've always desired but never had. It's going to be a great teaching. We're excited about it. Pumped that you are here today, and it really is an honor. And the one thing you're going to hear from Holly is that um, I'm going to think about is just strength. And God's done some real incredible things in her life, worked through her family, worked through her story. I'm so excited that you're here today because I know, I know without a shadow of a doubt that God's going to meet you right, right where you are. So let me encourage you to do this, is give God permission to do that, would you? We just kind of open up your heart and say, God, I, I want... Notice the sappy music, so... We're going we're gonna to pray, so we've got to play play some sappy music quick, you know, because no one can pray with you know, without the sappy music. So listen to what he's going to have you pray. To hear from you. Pray a dangerous prayer. Would you, would you bow your head at all of our campuses? And pray a dangerous prayer. And just say this. Just say, God, I give you permission. God, I ask for you to speak to my heart. Um... I don't have any ability to hear anything with my heart. If God has to speak to me, he's got to use ears. Just saying, you know, the the heart is like the wrong piece of anatomy for actually hearing things. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's welcome to Potential Church. First time speaking on the weekend, Pastor Holly. All right. Good morning. Good morning. 
Okay, now, just real weird question. Um, what exactly is the function of the Indiana Jones movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark? I, what function is it playing in this so-called... What is, in fact, what does even the theme itself, throwback, have anything to do with it? Listen carefully. It's like, I don't even understand what that has to do with anything. Welcome all of you here that are here at our Cooper City campus, and we're honored that you're here hanging out with us today. And those of you joining us online all over the world, thank you for being here. Welcome to Potential Church. And like Pastor Troy said, my name is Holly Brown. I am the missions coordinator here on the staff at Potential Church. And I just want to take a moment to say that my husband, Pastor Chris Brown, he's here some right here. Uh, he's on the staff team as well. And I just want to thank you guys for just for making Potential Church just the incredible place that it is. You know, we moved here four and a half years ago to be a part of Potential from Charlotte, North Carolina. And can I tell you that that was the best decision that my husband and I have ever made. And we've been blessed and honored to be able to give of our lives and our time to serve you and help you reach your God potential. But I want you to know that God has used Potential Church to change our Serve you and help you reach your God potential. What? is that i mean it's not it's not in the bible lives as well our family is not the same since we've been a part of potential church and we're just so honored honored to be a part of this church and i'm very grateful that pastor troy would believe in me and give me the opportunity to share with you this morning my story and uh, an encouraging word from god as well in fact though she's going to share her story oh and we'll have an encouraging word from the bible too notice a problem here I heard that today is Pastor Troy and Steph's 23rd wedding anniversary is actually today. So yes, yes, which is just incredible. So they're taking a little bit of time together and with their family. And, you know, I just want to say Pastor Troy and Steph have been great mentors in our life and incredible leaders, not just church leaders, but they're incredible leaders in their family and in the relationship with each other. I just watch them and I'm inspired and I'm convicted. <laughs> and I learned so much by just watching them. So they've just been incredible and we're excited to be here. Pastor Chris and I, we have three children together, uh, Max, Jack, and Annie Brown. I think we have a picture of them. We'll see in just a moment. But our, there's our little gang right there. Of course, Donald Duck's not ours, but um, we're not very big, big picture takers. So, we, you know, beggars can't really be that choosy. So Donald made the cut. But that's our gang. We prefer to refer to them as the wrecking crew because wrecking things it seems to be what they're the most proficient at at this age of their life. <laughs> but they, they are tons of fun for us. They're a bundle of energy and joy. And we have such, so much fun. We just have no accessories and... No picture frames in our home and don't expect to for another 15 years. <laughs> but they're, 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 they're a blast. But as we get started this morning, let's just bow our heads in a word of prayer. God, I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for your church, potential church. I thank you for the word that you're going to speak through us. Encourage our hearts today. Challenge us. Convict us. But most of all, God, just remind us of your faithfulness and your love this morning. It's in your precious name that I pray. Amen. Now, how many of you guys have seen the movie that Pastor Troy was talking about, Raiders of the Lost Ark? How many have seen that movie? Oh, good. Awesome. Okay, so maybe I was the only one, but I had never seen that movie until this past week, and I uh, didn't know how to find it because Amazon and Netflix, I don't have it. <laughs> <laughs> how do you grow up in the United States of America and not see Raiders of the Lost Ark? <clears throat> I hate to say it. I remember seeing it in the theater. 
when it first came out. So, uh, so I hit up our resident movie buff, Pastor Brian Vassell, and he got me all caught up on Indiana Jones. It's actually a pretty cool flick. Uh, but for those of you who haven't seen it, if you're like me, what you need to know is that Indiana Jones was, uh, he was an archaeologist, and that's, that's the people who dig, right? Is that archaeologists? Archaeologists? Okay. So, Among other things. Oh, man. <laughs> okay, so this is the part where apparently this is the... the, the cultural theme and tie-in which makes it them relevant you know because all you know you got to show uh, seekers out there that y you can meet them at their you know with the things they're interested in so she did the obligatory thing and she's watched the movie raiders of the lost ark so she can somewhat kind of talk about it during this throwback sermon but i mean it's kind of it's it's talking about a bait and switch i mean ugh. He was this archaeologist, and he was looking for this Ark of the Covenant, okay, which of course is un of unprecedented value in our world's history. And he's on this hunt for this in this entire movie. He's trying to discover this. And as I was watching this movie, I kept asking myself, how in the world does something like the Ark of the Covenant end up lost? I mean, something of that much value to our world, how did that even end up lost? And then the more I thought about it and the more I realized, you know what, Chris and I have lost about three sets of wedding rings. And I realized, okay, things of great value do end up lost, you know. How many of you have lost your wedding rings before? I could give my husband some good company. There you go. Yeah, she's yeah. <laughs> he's pointing to his wife. Uh, listen, but it happens all the time. You know, just a few weeks ago, Chris and I were at the Pembroke Lakes Mall here near our Cooper City campus. And it was in between services. So we had to get back and we were really tight for time. And we got to the car. We got all three kids in the car in the hot sun. And we realized we didn't have our keys. <clears throat> Just to note, she's preaching about herself. After a process of elimination, my husband realized that he threw the keys in the trash in the food court. And so after going through like four trash cans, you know, it's one thing to have to dig through your own trash. It is a whole other ball game when you got to dig through somebody else's. Oh, it's the most disgusting. And all I could do is sit back and watch. I mean, I was like, I can't help. I'd rather call the taxi, pay the $400 for a new set of keys. And so anyways, he finds the keys. We rush to church. We get here just in the nick of time. I run and check the kids in. He stands in the lobby and shakes all your hands. <laughs> so <laughs> he's very committed, very committed to what he does here at Potential. Uh, but you know what? That happens all the time. We lose objects of great value. And the more I thought about this this week, the more I realized that the things that are of greater value that we lose are, are the more intangible things, you know? You know, we can lose our, our faith in the economy. I mean, especially in a day like today. I mean, it is hard to trust that if I invest my money in this economy, it's going to be safe, that I'll get any kind of return on it. And we can lose our faith in the economy. Another thing that we can lose is our our belief in people. You know, somebody hurts you once, you forgive them, you keep believing in them, but they hurt you two, three times, I mean, you're done. You quit wanting the best for them. You quit hoping and thinking that they might be a good person deep down, and you lose your belief in people. Set that aside and move on. And you know, in the- no, no, Notice what she said. It was kind of an, you know, just a throwaway line. You quit believing that they're a good person deep down. This is not the Christian worldview. This is not what scripture reveals. Scripture reveals that none of us are good people deep down, that actually deep down each and every one of us is corrupted and sinful by nature. The, uh, it, she, what she just said, it's kind of a throwaway, is the exact opposite theology and doctrine that's taught in Scripture. And I think that ends up being, you know, this part of her overall theology. 
which might explain why it's so not Christian. But you'll see what I'm saying here. We continue. The more I thought about this this week, the more I realized, though, what I think is of greatest value for us as Christ followers that we can lose is our will. You know, just our will to hold on. And, you know, I, pain has a way of taking us to the point of asking. So, by the way, we're officially done now with the uh, Indiana Jones um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, all of that was just to basically kind of lead into her story about herself. Asking the question, is faith in God really worth holding on for? I mean, have you ever asked yourself that question? Is faith in God really worth holding on for? And I've come face to face with this question in my life. And I really had to battle through this for years. And I want to share with you some of the things that I have realized and I have learned about our God. <clears throat> and it's all things about our God that I believe those of us, if you're here and you're in pain, will encourage you and will remind you today that we serve a God that's worth holding on for. See, I grew up. In what am I, what do I, what am I trusting God for? And why would, what am I holding on to him for? What, what exactly does, is the purpose for God in this context? In a Christian home, I had wonderful parents. And my, but this one thing about my house that you just got to understand this, okay? Because as, as you get to know me, it'll explain a lot about me. Um, I grew up in a home filled with estrogen, okay? I have three sisters. We were very close in age. So we were all teenagers at the same time. And I have one younger brother, but my poor dad and my brother, they were just significantly outnumbered. I mean, even today, I still feel bad of some of the drama that we put them through. But, you know, my dad, and I know, I know there was times that my dad just had to severely question his sanity. It's, especially with four teenage daughters, he at least questioned it once a month, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and, and so, but my dad was, he was just the most gracious, patient, kind man that you ever met. I mean, in fact, my dad was very much my hero growing up. He was a strong man. He was athletic. He was strikingly handsome. And what I loved the absolute most about my dad, though, was it was just this love for people. I mean, my dad genuinely loved people, and he had a way with people. I mean, he could work a lobby. He could work a store like you've never seen before. And my dad at the time, he was a grocery store manager, actually, my entire childhood. And he had this he had this rule at his store that... Okay, I want to point something out here. Your life experiences are not what's supposed to be taught in, in church. Pastors are commanded to preach the word in season and out of season. Okay? Specifically because the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but will gather for themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. Right? They'll wander off into myths. The job of a pastor is to preach the word. Your life stories are not the point of a sermon. Now, you may use a life story to illustrate something if it'll help somebody understand what the biblical text says, but that's not what's going on here. So now it's, this is, this is, I don't know, group therapy, share your life stories time, but this is supposed to be Bible time. This is another reason why I hate to say this, but potential church will continue to be disqualified from being a real church. You know, this, you know, there's, they will continue on for a long time now, a church in potentia. If 
if, if you left your groceries, like if you paid for your eggs or your bread, you know, but you wanted to put them last so they didn't get squished, so you put them up on the counter and you forgot them, which happens all the time, uh, he wouldn't let the store call you and tell you to come pick up your groceries. In fact, he would find out who you were, he would look up your, your address in the phone book, and he would get in his car and he would personally drive the groceries to your house and deliver them to you. And so he was just known in our town for being this great manager and this great man who loved people. He was about as famous as a grocery store manager could possibly be in, in a relatively large town. And, uh, but you know, when my dad, let's see, he was 37 years old. When he was a 37-year-old man, I was a 12-year-old daughter at the time. That's when pain really hit our home and tragedy entered uh, into the Dwyer household. <clears throat> my dad went to the doctor one afternoon and they diagnosed him as a 37-year-old healthy athletic man with an inoperable brain tumor. It was a brain tumor that was wrapped around his brainstem. The neurosurgeon could do absolutely nothing about it, and they gave my dad that day six months to live. And what was the blessing of it, and yet sometimes what was the hardest part of all of it, was that my dad didn't die in six months. He actually lived for another 13 years. But what you need to understand is that during that 13 years, my dad was never given more than six months to a year to live. And we were told this every time that we went to the neurosurgeon. You need to get your things in order. You need to prepare your family. You need to say goodbye because you'll never make it back to your next appointment. And so we lived for 13 years in the state of the final stages of somebody's life, of saying goodbye to somebody, yet with a Christian background, hoping and believing and praying against all odds that God was going to step in and heal my dad. And I believed, I believed as a young girl that if we fought this thing hard enough, and I want to tell you, I fought hard with my dad. I went to nursing school. I learned all about his brain tumor. I went to every one of his doctor's appointments. I fought with him. And I believed that if we did our part and we fought hard like that, that God was going to step in. And he was going to do his part and he was going to heal my dad. But as the years dragged on and on and my dad became worse and worse, he lost everything. He lost his ability to run fast. He lost his ability to hit a ball hard. He lost his ability to write. Even walking became very difficult in the end. He lost his mind. He lost his memory. He lost his love for life, his love for people. He lost it all in that 13 years. And so as those years dragged on and on and my dad just kept getting worse and worse and worse, the reality became very evident to me as a young girl. And that was the reality that God was not going to heal my dad. And my dad died at the age of 50 after this long and bitter 13-year battle. And can I tell you this morning that his death, it devastated me. But more than that, it significantly rocked my faith in God. And I realized as I sat in my pain from my dad's death that I had two options when it comes to this God journey. Two options that I think we all have when we face pain in significant ways in our life. And that is, we can choose to give up or we can choose to hold on. We can do like our pastor says and we can push through the pain and onto the promise or we could just throw in the towel. And you know, if we're- Push through the pain and onto the promise. What on earth does that even mean? That's just a, a vapid, non-biblical slogan. It's like a self-help slogan. It's not a biblical doctrine. Push through the pain onto the promise. What promise are we talking about? 
we're gonna hold on in our faith during tough times in our lives, I believe we have to answer the question, is our faith in God worth holding on for? Is it all worth it? And I'm gonna share with you today three things that God taught me in my pain, three things that I really struggled with that God taught me and I now believe, and I believe they'll encourage your heart and uh, minister to you and show you that we serve a God that's worth holding on for. The first thing that God taught me in my pain is that God sees. God sees us in our pain. And you know, if you have your Bibles with you, actually go ahead and open them up to John chapter 9. That's going to be our text for today. Okay, so she's going to get to a biblical text. I will be teaching this text. This is actually one of my favorite passages of Scripture. But I'll be teaching it shortly because I'm going to want you to hear what the punchline of this text really is. Because when you know what it really is, you're going to see how sad this is that she doesn't know what to do with this text. You know, as my dad struggled through this battle, and I watched him, you know, 13 years, that's a really long time, especially as a young girl, that's a really long time to watch somebody as, a, as, as young as my dad was. I look at my husband, he's in his mid-30s. Okay, my mom had five kids. My, hus- my husband's the same age. I can't imagine bringing in here week after week in front of you guys and him forgetting you, forgetting who you are, forgetting what we do as a church, not being able to walk in, and that's exactly what my family went through. And so that was, that was a long time, and I found myself in this 13 years, because I grew up in a Christian home and I was uh, raised in the church, you know, my parents t- t- took me faithfully to church every week. I never, I never found myself questioning the big things about God, you know, I knew, I knew, I never questioned that the world was going to keep spinning in place, I never questioned that my eternity was going to be secure in heaven. What I found myself seriously doubting was that God cared about the little things, you know? Did he care that there was this, this family that, had, that was sitting under the same roof, on the same street, in the same neighborhood, in the same city, year after year for a decade? For a decade, we've been asking for the same miracle. I mean, did he even see our pain? Now, I don't know if you've ever been there, if you found yourself asking that. Does God see the pain, the little things? Does he see that you've got four kids and Johnny keeps spilling his milk and you're gonna scream at Johnny? You know, does he see the frustration that that anxiety puts you in? Does he see that you're struggling to get out of bed in the morning because the day just feels so overwhelming? Does he see the mom who has to look at Susie for the third year in a row and say, I'm so sorry, but I can't buy you a new book bag. We just don't have the money. Does he see that kind of pain? You know, does he see the dad who's gone to bed every night for two years crying, praying that his wife would come home. Does he see those tears anymore? Have you found yourself in that place where you don't question the bigness of God, but rather you just question the littleness of God? I want us to look at our text today. I believe God will speak to us through it. John chapter 9 verses 1 through 7 is what we're going to start with. As he went along, he is Jesus, okay? He's walking along. He saw a blind man. Look at that. He saw a man but he saw his pain too because it says he saw that he was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, that means teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in him. Okay, he tells us he's about to do something in this man. As long as it is day, 
We must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And then look at this. And having said this, he spit on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and he came home seeing. And I want you to guys look back at verse 1 because you can see right there in verse 1 that Jesus sees this man's pain. He sees his pain. He even speaks to the fact that he's about to do something about it. He said, this has been done so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He speaks to the fact that he's going to move and work in this man's life. But before he ever spits in that mud and begins to heal this man, you know what he does? He stops. He takes a moment and he teaches his disciples a lesson. And some of us are just in that season. You're in that season. And okay, I'm going to pause. Okay, I'm going to teach the text. John chapter 9. Because she's going to read herself into this. And she's going to read the people in the audience into this. And let's be careful what we're going to do here. Because this text is really about Christ. Okay? As he passed by. By the way, what, why is John writing the Gospel of John? To record what Jesus said and did. So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. This is what John himself says. In fact, let's take a look a little farther in the Gospel of John. You'll see that this is the whole point of this Gospel. Yeah, you know, flip on over to John chapter 20, verse 30. I'm going to read. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's, this, that's the real thesis sentence, and it comes late in the gospel, as to why John wrote these things. So that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's why all of these things are written, including chapter 9. Now, here's what it says. As he passed by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. So his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, so that he was born blind? Okay, That's the theological point that's going to get unpacked here. Okay, Why? Because the, the, the kind of the teaching of the day is that, well, if you're born blind, well, it's because somebody sinned. Now, technically, you could say, yes, this is true, and this is a result of the sin of Adam and Eve, okay? But Jesus here at this point is basically going to point out that, you know, what you see is not exactly what you get. What you think might be going on or assume is going on may not be that at all, okay? So Jesus is going to answer the question. So Jesus, it was not that this man sinned or his parents in fact, the whole reason why this guy was born blind, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Th think about that for a minute. The reason why this man was born blind was specifically so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's the reason. And so literally, that is, you know, if when you think about this, okay, his parents they get together, the wife is pregnant, the day of the labor comes, they're excited that their new child is going to be born, and their child is born blind. 
And in that culture, based on this question, what is the assumption? Oh, wow. They really screwed up. They're God's punishing them. That's exactly what is happening. Even the disciples kind of bear that out. And so not only do they have the, the just that gut check thing that happens that you, oh no, something is wrong with our child. But now they've got to bear the shame and the scorn of this. And that comes out later in the story in spades, okay, what they went through. But the reason why he was born blind was not because they sinned, despite what everybody was saying, despite you know the shame that they suffered. That was not it at all. The reason why their their son was born blind was so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. And think about it. This is recorded in the Gospel of John. So Christians for millennia know all about the, what this guy's story is. And remember, these stories were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So Jesus said, We must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus is pointing to himself. So having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. Now, while he was going to the pool of Siloam, Jesus moved along. It's important to note, this man was healed by Jesus and when he came back seeing, Jesus wasn't there. Okay? So he still has yet to see Jesus. And now, well, all hell's about to break loose. Literally. Okay? So the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, Well, it is he. Others said, No, no, no. It just looks like him. So he kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to them, well, so how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus came and made mud and anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. And note, he doesn't basically say I did something to deserve this. He says he received it as a gift, right? So they said to him, well, where is he? He said, I don't know. So they brought, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said, he put mud on my eyes. I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? So there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what did you say about him since he opened your eyes? What do you say about him? He said, well, he's a prophet. So the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son? who you say was born blind, how then does he now see? 
His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. Notice that the Pharisees are treating this miracle as if Jesus had committed a crime. They're interrogating witnesses at this point. This is like a trial. Okay? His, by the way, his parents kind of pick up on this. Uh, but, but, but how he sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. So his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So therefore his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, he's a sinner. Now watch what happens. This is just great. So he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've already told you, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples? So they reviled him. And watch this. You'll notice that the charge here. You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. So the man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Notice, watch, he's flipping the tables theologically here. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. This guy turned the tables on them using their own theology. And they reviled him and said, you were born in utter sin. Notice the question of the disciples comes right back up right here. And it's clear where the, the Pharisees lie. You were born in utter sin. That's why you were born blind. You sinned or your parents sinned. That's why. And you would. Okay. How dare you sinner instruct us? And that's where the Pharisees leave. But that's not where this man's story ends. So Jesus heard that they had cast him out. You can only imagine what he had gone through. And yet he, he so boldly defended Jesus. It's as if God the Holy Spirit had given him these eloquent, eloquent words, an amazing argument to turn the tables on them theologically, and they were just not going to hear it. And so afterwards, you can just imagine him going, what, what is going on? What happened? I'm being treated like a criminal for, for receiving my sight. And Jesus seeks him out. And remember, he still has not seen Jesus. Not with his new eyes. Okay? Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, 
Well, who is he, sir, so that I might believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped Jesus. This is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. I mean, even the way Jesus approaches him is just so brilliant. Do you believe in the Son of Man? You have seen him. You're looking at him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And this man's response is he says, Lord, I believe. And he worships Jesus, which by the way, if Jesus were not God, it would have been a sin beyond belief for him to receive the worship of this man. This man worships Jesus as God, as who he is. What just went down, he believes. Okay? Lord, I believe. Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, so that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Now some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This whole passage hinges on a false theology. A false, you know, basically it's a refutation of a false theology that the Pharisees were holding forth that, oh, bad things happen to bad people. You, you, the reason why there's, there's terrible things happening to you is because of sin. You, you sinned or your parents sinned, that's why you were born blind. Jesus completely blows that up. The reason why that man was born blind, according to Jesus, is because so that he can display the works of God in his life. He and this man, he was not bitter, he was thankful. He believed in Jesus and he proclaimed him boldly and he worshiped him in public. And it's all so amazing. I mean, and that's the idea. Each and every one of us is born blind. We really are. When it comes to the things of God, we just don't know anything. What we think we know we or we speculate on, that's just so wrong and off. Jesus sets the, sets, resets the table and challenges our idolatry and our false doctrine and our false ideas and brings us instead into the light of his light. Right? Because he's the light of the world. The story was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and by, by believing have life in his name, just like this young man who was born blind. He believed. He worshipped. Do you believe? Do you believe in his name? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that you are declared righteous purely as a gift by grace through faith because of what Christ has done for you. Do you believe? 
then you have life in his name. Worship him, just the way this young man did. Worship him, and in doing so, you will be scorned. You will be held up for ridicule, just the way that man was. Just the way Jesus was. This is a story. It's really about Jesus, and it was written so that you would believe in him and have life. Now, took the time to do that because Holly here is going to do her darndest to try to teach this text. But the reality is because the false teaching that she's been taught, she has no clue why this text was written or even what it's about. And so she says she came from Charlotte, North Carolina. Makes me wonder if she was at uh, Stephen Furtick's church at Elevation. I mean, if that's the case, I mean, between Stephen Furtick and Troy Gramling, the only thing she's been taught to do with Scripture is to read herself into it. And she's not in there. And so as sad as this story is that she tells about her father with the the brain tumor, and as just terrible as that is, there's a greater tragedy going on. And that is that right now she's completely blind to what this passage is about, and yet she's up there teaching it when she shouldn't even be teaching it at all. And the only thing she can do is grope around in the darkness and try to basically find herself in the story and find try to teach people to do the same. It's so, so tragic. You just need to be reassured this weekend that God most definitely sees your pain. And he is going to do something about your pain. He's not going to leave you in that forever. But sometimes he takes a moment to teach a lesson. Maybe the lesson's to you. Maybe the lesson's to your family. Maybe it's to everybody else in the world watching you go through your pain. But sometimes God's going to take a moment, stop, and teach a lesson. And don't ever doubt during that moment, whether that moment is 13 years or whether that moment is one week, that God doesn't see your pain. He sees your pain. And we've got to determine as Christ followers that we're going to hold on during the lesson. And I want to encourage you, if you struggle with that, man, what spoke the most to me, what healed my heart in this area of my belief was that, was to jump into the book of the Psalms. I want to encourage you, read the Psalms. Through the Psalms, you will be reassured that our God is a loving God, that he most definitely sees your pain. It tells us in the Psalms that he sees our weeping, that he hears our weeping. It tells us that he is a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows, that if he wakes you in the morning, he will sustain you to get through that day. And some of us just need to know that. If y'all wake up, God's got this, and I'm going to make it through the day. And I just want to encourage you, jump into the Psalms, read the Psalms, because you will be reassured that our God most definitely sees your pain. And once again, you'll be able to believe not only in the bigness of God, but again in the littleness of God. Our God is worth holding on for because he does see our pain. The second truth that God taught me in pain is that our God covers us. He covers us in our pain. You know, pain can cause us to do it can cause us to do things that we never thought that we'd be capable of doing. You know, have you been there before? Has pain caused you at times to maybe change or compromise your beliefs just to get out from underneath the pain? You know, it can cause us to lash out and hurt people. You know, our pastor says this a lot, that hurting people hurt people. And I was no, I was no exception to this truth. Uh, in fact, when my dad died, I carried so much shame and guilt in my life because, you see, my dad, in the last few years of his life, I completely, I completely quit on him, if I'm going to be honest with you. I completely quit on my dad. I was so angry. I was so angry that he forgot a lot of things about me, forgot so much. Okay, now, just a reminder, 
she had just read seven verses from John 9, and we're back into her story. So sad. Much about our daily life. I was angry that my fighter, my hero, what I didn't know at the time was that he couldn't help it, that that part of his brain that carried a sense of initiative had been completely eaten by the tumor. But at the, at the time, I just saw this fighter and this hero that gave up on life, and I was so angry at him for that. I was so angry. And so it caused me, my pain caused me to do a lot of stupid and hurtful things to my dad that left me with a lot of shame and guilt after my dad died. In fact, the night that my dad passed away, I remember I was at my mom's house, I was in the kitchen, I was helping her make some dinner. My dad walks in and he stands at the doorway in the kitchen. I can see it just as clear as it happened, if it happened yesterday. And he stands at the doorway in the kitchen and he looks at me. He doesn't say a word, he just has this confused look on his face. And then he has in his eyes the most pain and loneliness that I've ever seen in anybody in my life. And in that moment, God spoke to me and he said, Holly, you go give your father a hug and tell him that you love him. See, I'd been a really long time since I hugged my dad, a really long time by this point. And I did not want to give my dad a hug. And so I stood there and as my dad stood there just staring at me with this pain in his eyes, I want to tell you that I wished I would have said yes to God. I wish I would have obeyed him, but I didn't dug my heels in the ground, grabbed onto the sink, and I said no. Just a quick note. Notice she's receiving special revelations from God, and now she's wishing she had obeyed the special revelation. No to God, and I said no to my dad. And the last memory I have of my dad alive is that he looked at me with that pain in his eyes. He dropped his eyes in complete rejection. And he walked out of that kitchen. And moments later, he collapsed on the bathroom floor. And I was a nurse, of course, I told you guys that. So I did CPR on my dad for 30 minutes. And so instead of being able to give him a hug for the last time, I did CPR on him. He died right there on that bathroom floor. Ambulance came and picked him up and he was pronounced dead on arrival, of course. And how does that happen? I mean, he was my hero. He was my hero. And yet I couldn't even touch him. You know, pain, it has a way of causing you to do things that you never thought you would be capable of doing. And I don't know if you walked in this morning and you're carrying, like I did for years, guilt and shame on your shoulders. Maybe you said something that you don't have the opportunity to take back. Maybe you cheated or quit on somebody who's the, who deserved, they deserved your love and faithfulness and you quit on them. I don't know what shame and guilt you carried in here this morning, but I know that God wants to speak a word to you in it. Look with me at verse six. If, you're, if they're carrying shame and guilt, the word that needs to be spoken is the forgiveness of sins because Christ bore their sins on the cross. Because he was pierced for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace with God was upon him. That's the word that needs to be spoken to those who bring guilt and shame to church. It says in verse 6, after saying this, 
He spit on the ground, he made some mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Okay, I want you to go with me here for a moment because it's difficult to look at how Jesus did this miracle and not object. It seems offensive, it seems harmful, and as a nurse, it seems at least unsanitary, okay? If you're not gonna give it anything else, you can say that this is an unsanitary miracle. When it comes to miracles, Jesus could have just spoken and healed this man. You know, he's done that before. We've seen him do it before. So you just think, man, this guy really got the raw end of the deal when it came to miracles, you know? And so I was reading this, but I want to share something with you guys because I was offended by this at first. And then I started to think about my nursing career. And did you know that in nursing that your DNA, let me make sure I get this right, your DNA is the set of traits qualities or features that characterize a person, okay? So basically, your DNA is what makes you you. So if you, if those of you in here that have children, if I wanted to prove that your kids are in fact your kids, you know what I would do? I would test their DNA because their DNA would contain your essence. And you know, this happened all the time in nursing. I worked in pediatric nursing, so this happened all the time. We had to do DNA testing many times to prove that, you know, a father of a child was in fact the father of a child. And you know what I learned in nursing? The most common way that we do DNA testing is through somebody's saliva. Not crazy, it's not through their blood, it's not through their urine, it's actually through the saliva and it's the most reliable way. And so go with me here for a minute because could it be that here this blind man, you know, being blind back then was very shameful. It was very shameful because it had made this man, we'll see in a few moments, it had made him a beggar. And it probably made him do some things that as a three or- Okay, I wanna point something out. This point that she's making pure abject speculation it's not exegesis at this point it's not even eisegesis it's just flat-out speculation could it be four or five-year-old that he never thought he was gonna have to do just in order to survive the pain and the shame that came with being blind and so maybe maybe Jesus was saying to that man in that moment when he spit in that mud and he mixed it together and he wiped it on that man's eyes, maybe he was saying, I cover you. That your shame is covered with me. Now that's exactly what Jesus said. Yeah, there's not, no point ever in scripture that makes that, that, that connection. In fact, when it comes to our sins being covered, it's always through the blood of Christ, not his saliva. You're looking at the wrong fluid. That when he died on the cross for us, you know, he stood on that cross, he stretched his arms out, and he said, your shame is covered with me. And what I have found, though, and what I want to share with you tonight, is that so often, as Christ followers, we can allow the enemy see we can allow the enemy to convince us that although our eternity is secured in heaven that our shame and our guilt is ours to carry for the rest of our life don't we do this all the time but see when Jesus died on that cross he died for all of it he didn't just die for your sin he died for your shame and your guilt that follows but so often we <laughs> oh boy still carry around something that's already been covered for us and you know, what this can do as Christ followers is this significantly holds us down. I think I put it in your outline this way, that sin may trip us up for a season, but it is often the guilt and the shame that follows that holds us down for a lifetime.
Have you guys found that? How many, how many of us have walked into an auditorium? And I, and I tell you this because I have been there in my life. You walk into an auditorium at one of our campuses and you sit down in your seat and you hear our pastor. You hear him week after week. He tells you, he says that you are, you are covered, that, you're, that you are knit together in your mother's womb, that God designed you in your mother's womb with a very specific job that only you can do in this life, that you were created for significance. And how many of us? Okay, listen, that's the outline of the seeker-driven gospel. Pure narcissism. This is not the biblical gospel. The moment we hear our pastor say that we sit up on the edge of our seat and our heart aches, it aches to believe that. We want to believe that God would use us to live a life of significance. But if we're going to be honest, the moment those words come out of our pastor's mouth, that very moment, the enemy speaks in our ears and he says, but not you. Not you. I can't even believe you're sitting in here with the way that you treated your dad. How, how can you even be in here worshiping? Not you. Not with the way you quit on your family. How many of us let the enemy do that to us? And you know what he does in that moment? You know what the enemy is doing? He has taken our shame and our guilt and he has used it to paralyze us. And so what happens is he strips us of all of our God-given dreams and we sit here week after week in the same seat. So Satan comes along and strips us of our God-given dreams. Where is any of this taught in the Bible? Why is she trying to say that this is Christian doctrine? The Bible doesn't say any of this. We never move. We only trust God for enough to get us a ticket into heaven, but we never trust him enough to step forward, to do something with our lives, and to give us a life of significance. And we never trust God for that much. And the problem is that this is a lie, that Jesus died for us, and he gave his blood in his life, not just to spit, to cover us. And when he covered us, he covered us completely. He covered the sin, but he also covered the guilt and the shame that follows as well. And we've got to learn that we are not defined by our past failures. We're not defined by that. You are not an addict. You are a Christ follower who got tripped up for a season and you're back on your way and your destiny is sitting out in front of you and God will take you there. He will take you to your destiny. If you are a Christ follower and you have confessed your sins, it is over. So your destiny is sitting right out in front of you. You're not a sinner. You're just somebody who got tripped up for a season. Your destiny is right out there. Just grab it. Oh my. It is completely over and the enemy has no right to make us feel guilty about something that our father tells us is completely removed as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. God doesn't remember it anymore. Why are we letting the enemy use it every day to hold us back and paralyze us? We're not, we're not defined by that. You're not a divorcee. You are a woman who happened to go through a divorce, but you're back on track and your best days are ahead of you. You've got a potential in front of you and God is going to take you to reach that potential. Don't let the enemy come. You got a potential. This is like, a, you know, the, the words have been reworked, but this is Joel Osteen's theology. It's from the pit of hell. This is just satanic. Convince us that we have to live the rest of our lives defined by our failures because it is a complete lie. Our God gave his life so that we didn't have to live that way. And our God is worth holding on for in our journey because he completely covers us. No matter what we've done, our sin and our guilt and our shame is completely covered. And that's just a beautiful word from our God. The final truth I want to share with you that I learned about our God through pain is that God changes God changes us through our pain. Look with me at verses 7 through 9. 
Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and he came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging, I love this, they didn't even recognize him. They asked the question, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that it was he, but others said no, it only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Okay, absolutely love this. One day, I was reading this passage, and you know, I found myself, every time I would read passages about healing, I would get on these rolls with God, and I'd be like, God, why? Come on, why did you not do this for us? Why? We needed a miracle. We were begging for that miracle. My dad was the blind man. Why? 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 Have you ever found yourself doing that to God? You just want to know why. And my husband tells me that I do this to him as well. He says, God's not the only person you give this why, why, why stuff to. And he tells me that I do it to him often. Okay, I'll be honest. I don't do it that often. I'm getting a lot better. But the reason that I do sometimes do this to my husband is because I am a planner. I am a planner. How many people would consider yourselves a planner, an organized planner in the house? Okay, good. You're going to totally go with me on this. Okay, so I'm a planner. My husband likes to call it a controller. Uh, but I just think that I have learned the way that things are done best. And if it, we found the best way, why would you ever change that? And so especially when it comes to my children and their nighttime routine. The best way is to feed them dinner, give them a bath, do the dishes, play a game with the kids, say their prayers, tuck them in bed. It's the best way. It works. It always works. And so if I'm out for the evening and I come home, if Chris is in charge of the wrecking crew that night and in and, and the house, and I come home, you know, you kind of you kind of go through your list. Do so any of you guys do that? I try really hard not to, but I just go there. And so I start going through the list. You know, hey babe, what'd you guys have for dinner? Oh, we had chicken. Okay, and then I'll look at the uh, I'll look at the sink. I'll notice he did. Another story about her. The dishes, and then I'll say, so did you give the kids a bath? And I'm telling you, <laughs> 50% of the time, the answer is going to be, no, I didn't give the kids a bath. And I don't know what it is. Planners, you can relate to this, but something inside of me unravels. I mean, just completely unravels. And always, my next line is, why did you not give the kids a bath? You know, because we've had this conversation 15 times. Why did you not? And my husband looks at me every single time and he goes, why does it matter? <laughs> and I have to tell you, when he asks me that, I feel like it is my responsibility as a godly wife and mother to tell him exactly why it matters that you didn't give the kids a bath. And so I tell him, I, it, it matters because although tonight is Friday night at 9 p.m., we are going to be late tomorrow night to church at 6 p.m. because you chose not to give the kids a bath. And then he looks at me like I am completely crazy. And I said, let me tell you why. You want me to tell you why? Because remember, when we sat down to do our weekly planning on Sunday, and we planned this coming Saturday, we said, we said and agreed that we were going to get up early, we were going to clean the garage, we are going to get the laundry started, we are going to fix breakfast for the kids, we were going to do the dishes, hit the gym together, get the boys' haircuts, grab lunch, come home. I was going to jump in the shower and dry my hair while you played a game with the boys, read a book to Annie, and then we were going to plan our meetings with our team, jump in the car, grab a cup of Starbucks and drink it peacefully on the way to church. <laughs> and he, I have to tell him, there's no time for bathing kids in that schedule. And so that is exactly why we're going to be late tomorrow night. And so my husband looks at me and often he'll say, are you done yet? <laughs> and so, you know, sometimes he'll tell me, well, would it help to tell you that, you know, I didn't, I didn't bathe the kids because 
they were, they, they fell asleep watching a movie. But you know what I did do? I straightened the garage, I did the laundry, and I did the dishes. So I probably saved you more time. And you guys know what that feels like, planners, and you're like, oh, shoot. I gotta apologize. <laughs> and so you apologize and you move on with it. And I always tell them, I always say, babe, I'm not mad, but I got to make sure you understand why. Because it's very important to me. So anyways, but I find myself, I do this with God often as well. And I just get on these rolls. Why, God, why? And as I read this passage, I was doing the same thing. God, why? Why didn't you heal my dad? We were begging just like this man. We were begging for a miracle. My dad was blind and we needed that. And you didn't do that. Why? And you know, one day when I decided, actually, I feel like God tells me, <laughs> I feel like God sometimes says the same thing Chris says, are you done yet? <laughs> and when, when, one day when, when, when I finally realized to keep my mouth shut and let God speak to me and minister to my heart, God spoke to me probably the most life-changing truth when it comes to pain in my life. And he said, Holly, I did do a miracle. Notice direct revelation here. I did. See, what you're missing all these years is that your dad wasn't the blind man. You were. And you wanted this miracle for you. But I chose instead in your situation to do a greater miracle in you. I think what we all have to understand this morning is that we serve a God that can change situations in an instant. He can change your entire situation in an instant. He can cure the cancer. He can make the business thrive. But what, but what sometimes we have to understand is that God doesn't always choose to do that. And when he chooses not to heal or not to repair, it's because when God chooses not to do a miracle for us, it is because there is a greater miracle that he wants to do in us. You want us to look at, look at this verse, um, look back with me again at verse. Um, so the, uh, the video says, sometimes we want God to do a miracle for us, but God has a greater miracle he wants to do in us. This is just weird slogan theology. You got any biblical passages that say this? It might be the, the reason why God's not going to do a miracle for you because he's getting ready to, to uh, end your life. See, Christ saves us through the curse. Christ doesn't save us from it. Verse 7, where he says, um, let me see, go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was he, but others said, look at this. They said, no, it only looks like him. But he himself, and he insisted, I am the man. And you see, just as they didn't recognize this man before, when he came back from the pool, they didn't recognize the man. I don't want people to recognize me from who I was before my dad passed away. I don't want to be that same girl that sat across the dinner table from my dad for 25 years. I want, I want my... I see what she's doing with the text? They didn't recognize him because he had his eyes open, because he physically could see. He was healed, and they didn't recognize him as a seeing person. Now she's allegorized this and applied it to herself. And I just, I feel so bad for this woman because this is what she's been taught to do with the scripture. And she's completely blind to what the scriptures say and who they're about. They're not about her. They're about Christ. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name.
That's what that text is about. That's who it's about. That's what it's for. And she's just... This is just blindness and death. I want my life to be different because my dad died. I want his pain and his death to be for a reason. I want to be a better person. I want to run harder after God. And I have to tell you, God has used the pain of my dad's death to change me. I'm not nearly as flippant about life. I'm not a cold person anymore. I would never, I would never leave somebody hurting in their pain like I left my dad that night. I would never do that again because I'm not the same girl who stood in that kitchen that night. I'm not a procrastinator anymore. In fact, I've kind of swung the other way to the planning side. But you know what? Life has taught me, just like God said in verse 5, that, that our pain has taught me, just like God said in verse 5, that, that life is short. It'll soon be over. And you know, Chris and I, man, we have learned this lesson. We've buried in, three, or in 11 years of marriage, we've buried three parents, all very young, 45, 50, and 54. We have learned that life is short and we better get on with it. We better get on with reaching this world with a hope because it's not going to be long. It'll soon be over. Pain has taught us that. And pain has changed us. You know, I, have, I, I know that my family is not the only exception. I know that we're no, I mean, I know everybody has painful situations in their lives. I know as you sit here today, so many of us are hurting. You know, some of us are sitting here in a season of the greatest pain that you've ever been in your life. You never thought you would have to go through something that you're, like you're going through right now. I know some of you sit here and you just wonder what it's gonna feel like to swallow without a lump in your throat. I can tell you guys I've been there. I know what that feels like. And I know in times like that, that words can sound so hollow. I know that, but hear this tonight. Our God is a miracle worker. And he can change your situation in an instant. He can bring that spouse home. He can give you that baby you long for. He can heal your daughter. Our God can do that. He can do that this weekend. But listen, listen to this. If our God chooses not to do that this weekend, maybe he's going to do that next week. But if he chooses not to do that this weekend, what our God does want to do in every single one of us this weekend is he wants to begin to work a miracle in us. Our God can do that. And the key, the key to see, to holding on to your faith and seeing God work a miracle in you is to hold on to our faith. We have to remember three things about our God. We have to remember that in the middle of our pain, our God sees our pain, he covers our pain, and he will use our pain to change us. But then get this, because if you take nothing else with you today, I want us all to understand, though, the key to God working a miracle in your life, whether it's the miracle for you like he did this blind man, or it's the miracle in you like he did in my family. The key to that is we have to choose to step in obedience. We have to choose to move forward in our pain. We cannot just stay there. Now she's just condemned them all because none of them is, is obedient. None of them, not one of them, including her. So the key to a miracle is step into obedience. Good luck on that because... In order to say you're obedient, you must be perfectly obedient, not somewhat obedient, obedient some of the times. This is, she's just sealed their fate, locked them in hell. This is all, there's it, it, obedience. No, it's faith and trust in Christ. These things are written, John said, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing, 
have life in his name. We have to make the choice to keep moving forward. I think I wrote it. Cue sappy music. In your outline this way, that miracles, they take obedience and movement on our part as well. Oh, man, so, this is just so sad. Good night. Well, and you can see it right there in verse 7. He said, go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and he came. So she's using verse 7 as the end of the story. It's like, it's not even the halfway point. Came home seeing. What were Jesus' first words to this man? They weren't, oh, I feel your pain. Oh, let me hug. They were, go. You're going to have to go and wash. And Jesus was right there, right next to this man, ready and willing to heal him. But if he would not have gotten up, stepped forward in his pain, he never would have been healed. He would have gone home that night still in his pain. And Jesus was there, and he was ready and willing. And I can't, I can't think of any other reason except for to teach all of us why Jesus would have made this man walk to the river and to teach this man and the rest of us that miracles in our lives are going to take movement and they're going to take obedience on our part as well. And I saw this in my life. Just, I mean, talk about missing the whole point. Again, let me read from the passage. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir, so that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. See what's going on there? She's missed the whole point. She's trying to make a point regarding obedience, and this is not a passage about obedience. This is a passage about faith. About believing in the Son of God for the forgiveness of your sins, so that you might have life in his name. That's what this passage is about. But she doesn't know that. And the person, the peoples I blame, are the seeker-driven pastors who call themselves pastors, who've taught this woman to read herself into these texts and to not see Jesus. She's blind and being led by blind people, and they've all fallen into a pit together. So sad. Life, guys, when I began to step forward, when I determined that I serve a God that's worth holding on for, and I took my first step forward in my pain, man, I saw God begin to work miracles in my life. Just several weeks after my father passed away, I was in a church very much like Potential Church. It was in Charlotte, North Carolina. Somebody came up to me and they asked me to volunteer for the first time ever. And I have to tell you, I thought they were crazy. I thought they were crazy. I'm like, I am grieving. I am filled with guilt. So the solution is volunteer at church. Start being obedient. Oh. And I had a newborn baby at the time. I said, I can't, are you nuts? But you know, I had determined that I was going to be a different person because of what happened with my dad. And so instead, instead of saying no, like I would have said, I just said yes. And I stepped forward in my pain. And that was the first step I took in my pain. And can I tell you, when I left that Sunday afternoon, after spending an hour loving on somebody else and focusing on somebody else's pain, I'm telling you, the gaping wound at my dad's death left in my heart, it just received its first stitch. 
and I went home that afternoon and, and I opened up my Bible for what was the first time in months and I opened up to the book of Psalms because somebody told me to go there if you're hurting so I went there and I started to read the Psalms and can I tell you with every single chapter that I read man that wound just got another stitch and it got another stitch and every time that I have stepped forward in obedience God has begun God has healed my heart and so where five years later I feel whole again I feel like a full woman that is running after what God created her to do and I just want to ask you today this morning in light of your pain in light of the miracle that you need God to work in your life man what step of obedience is he asking what is he asking you to do where is he asking you to step you know I don't know I don't know what it is I know that it feels intimidating I know that it's scary it's scary to serve despite your own pain it's scary to step out and go get baptized despite your fear it's scary to open up your Bible and read when you have a busy busy schedule it's 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 overwhelming to get off the couch and go apply for jobs no matter how hopeless you feel or how hopeless the economy looks but if that's what God's telling you to do you're gonna have to step forward in that if you want God to see a miracle in your life you got to make the choice that I'm gonna make some steps and I'm gonna move towards my healing that I care enough about my healing that I'm just gonna sit here so miracles by earning them this is just a legalistic religion and beg you to do everything but I'm gonna move and I'm gonna work with you and think about this blind man how do you think he felt I mean I have I've thought about this and racked my brain on this here this man is he's blind and you know that it said that that river or that pool was 10 minute walk for a normal person it was a 10 minute walk away from where they were standing and it was at the the pool is at the lowest point in the city so this blind man had to walk down hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stairs just to get to this pool and you know you know this was a time before they had handicap ramps and so all I can think of all that I can think of is that maybe it was maybe it was a compassionate friend maybe it was a curious bystander that just wanted to see if this whole Jesus thing was real maybe it was a loving family member but somebody somebody had to have said let me walk you to your pool somebody had taken that poor man's hand and grabbed it and walked him to the pool and some and yet that person's not mentioned so you're making this huge point as your closing point from something that the text doesn't even say because you've got to try to figure out how to make this text fit your theology but this text doesn't fit your theology but he stood there every step of the way and said come on come on look just a few steps left you're almost there don't give up your miracles coming come on he said if you get to that pool you will be healed come on you're almost there don't give up in the journey hold on to my hand somebody took him to his healing and I have great news for all of us tonight because we at potential church man we are a family and we stand here week after week with our arms open our hands out and we are ready to hold your hand we are gonna take you to your pool we're gonna take you through your pain and onto your promise that's what we're gonna do for you we love you and you've just got to determine determine today that you are gonna hold our hand, that you're not gonna let go of our hand, and that you're gonna hold on to your faith. Man, don't let go in your pain. Our God is a good God. He is gonna cover you in your pain. He's gonna see you every step of the way through your pain, and He is gonna change you through it. And He promises, He promises that He will work all things together for our good, and He can use your pain.
your pain to be the very link in the chain that not only changes your life but changes your family's lives and your kids lives and your kids kids lives and I believe if you choose to hold on to your faith and you step forward in your pain that God will use your pain what you are going through today to change every generation every generation in your family's lives until the Lord returns I believe he's doing it in my family and he's working it now and I believe he will do the same for you we serve a good just a litany of positive confession statements have nothing to do with this text God we serve a good God that is worth holding on for let's bow our heads this evening or this morning I'm sorry excuse me okay we're done this is just absolutely tragic she has no clue, none whatsoever, that this text is about Jesus. She has no idea, she's completely blind to who this text is about and what that really truly means for her. She's left thinking that she's got to earn a miracle by her obedience. She's holding the same theology as the Pharisees in that passage. Absolutely, utterly tragic. Oh, terrible note to leave off on. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till Monday, may God richly bless you and the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.